0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to christchurchlondon.org. I want to start by giving a really big up to parents everywhere for the amazing job that you do. I came across the most amazing online resource where you can type in the ages of your children, and it tells you just how much you have invested in their cute, precious little lives. So just to kick us off, to warm us all up, a few statistics to get us going. If you've got one child, just one year old, on average over the last 12 months, you will have lost 1,900 Hundred and eighty-nine hours of sleep. Get in there. Uh, I have three children aged uh, seven, five, and two. I couldn't resist doing this for me. That means over the last seven years, I have lost 9,990 hours of sleep, and that's just average. Uh, one child aged one year over the last year, you will have changed around about 3,600 nappies. For me, that means over the last seven years, I've had my hands in over 17,000 nappies. You are never going to want to shake my hand ever again. Uh, In one year, on average, you end up singing 1,560 lullabies. For me, apparently, that works out at over 13,000. Though I have to confess, I don't think this computer software takes into account the slightly different parenting styles depending on where your child comes in the birth order. Uh, for the first child, I totally get it. You carefully pronounce every syllable of the lullaby. You intently dote over the merest change of expression. By the time the third child comes along, not so much. <laughs> it's a bit more like, rock baby on the treetop. And we're done. That's basically basically how it works. The cradle starts to rock. The baby falls down. Leave the kid in the tree. Once you get to number three, that's my advice. Don't judge me. Um, Next up, if you have had a baby in the last two years, on average, over their lifetime, you will end up spending on them £231,843. Yowza. Uh, for me, that works out at £695,529. Oh, my days. I mean, I mean it really is worth it. It really is. Uh, <laughs> just to give you a flavor of how worth it it is, Uh, Last term, um, my wife and I got to go and inspect some of our kids' work in school. If you're a parent of kids in school, it's called Seeing Their Learning Journey. So you can go in all proud to see what your kids have been writing about. We went in. I took a photo of what each of my kids have written in reception and in year two. One of them, as a photo, had written, Dad is fat like a cat. (laughs) And the other had written, Daddy is fat like a gorilla. (laughs) I... I want my money back. Um, (laughs) um, As a result of all this hard work, um, this website went on to show some of the quirky things that parents have done because they're just so tired. So a few more stats for you. Apparently, half of all parents have put their clothes on inside out. One third of all parents have worn odd shoes. 1 in 5, 20%, have apparently put breast milk in their coffee. I have been to some of your houses. I do not want to know if you have done that. And the weirdest one of all, 1 ninth, over 10% of parents, have accidentally cradled the cat while thinking it's their child. Really? When I saw that, I thought it says less about tired parents and more about cat people who are just weird, in my opinion. And um, apparently, parents of young children, it's only going to get harder. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I do, uh, Joy and I read like articles and books to prepare us for the next stage of parenting. I was reading something recently from an American author and speaker called Nora Ephron, uh, who said this, this quote caught my attention. A child is a grenade when you have a baby, you set off an explosion in your marriage, and when the dust settles, your marriage is forever different. Not better necessarily, not worse necessarily, but different. Uh, Later, she ended up writing this, which amused me greatly. She said, one piece of bonus advice for parents, when your children are teenagers, make sure you also have a dog. Why? So there's at least one person in the house who loves you. Great. (laughs) Great. The best is yet to come. So, Given all of that, here's the question I want to pose today. Given how hard parents work, if Jesus were here today, what would he want to say to parents? And if I had to give this talk a title, given it's Mother's Day, next Sunday, don't forget, I think it would be this. What would Jesus want to say to your mum? And the answer, by the way, is what I think he would say to all of us, whether or not we have children, and to answer this question, I want to look at a really quirky interaction about Jesus's mum between Jesus and a woman whose name we don't even know. It's one of the shortest Bible readings we've ever had at Christchurch. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there if you'd like, Luke chapter 11, but the words will be on the screen in a moment. And the context of these words is that Jesus has been going around saying some really profound and revolutionary things about God, about the kingdom of God, about himself, about life and its meaning. And it's in this context we read these words. As Jesus was saying all this amazing stuff, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That's the reading for today. Now, when I first heard those words, I thought to myself, either I don't understand what's going on here, or Jesus seems a bit edgy. He seems like he's being a bit snarky. It sounds like a very well-intentioned lady is calling out, wow, your mum, Jesus, she must be amazing. And it seems like Jesus replies, well, she'd be better off if she did what she was told. That's what it sounds like. Why would Jesus respond in this way? And I think at least part of the answer is rooted in the whole question of identity. And I want to do things a little differently this morning. I want to take the next 10, 15 minutes or so talking about our identity and then come back to this passage and look at this interaction through that lens to try and make a little bit of sense of it. So... When it comes to identity, I want to start by drawing a two-by-two diagram. And if you can't see this at the back, don't worry. There'll be some equivalent slides coming up on the screen behind me. Now, philosophers tell us there are two primary ways that we form our sense of who we really are, our identity, both of which are founded on fundamental human needs. The first way we form our identity is through others, our external world. And this is rooted in our fundamental human need for acceptance. There is an author by the name of Mitch Prinstein who's written a book called Popular. And one of the things he says is that when you and I were in senior school, there were chemical changes happening in our brains that made popularity, acceptance, approval seem like just about the mo- most urgent need in all the world. And those changes have stuck with us ever since. Now, in reality, our need of acceptance goes back way pre-senior school. It's just there that we feel it particularly keenly. And as a result, many of us choose to form our identity through our external world and where we fit in the network of relationships in which we find ourselves. An example of this might be, for example, the character that Russell Crowe plays in the movie Gladiator. If you've seen that famous scene where he confronts Caesar in the gladiatorial arena, how does he identify himself? My name is Maximum Decimus Meridius. Commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, and loyal to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Thank you very much. (laughs) Any actor here is thinking, my job is safe. (laughs) But here is somebody who's saying, Who am I? I'm a father, I'm a husband. I'm general to these people. I'm commander over those people. I'm loyal to this particular emperor. This is who I am. Conversely, the other primary way that we form our identity is through what I'd call reference to the self. Uh, Rather than looking externally, instead, I look internally to things like my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, to try and work who I really am. And this is based on our fundamental human need to be known. We want people to know who we really are and what we are all about. Perhaps this approach is epitomized by the lyrics to that famous Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. Or if I had to pick somebody who exemplifies this, I'd pick the character Elsa in the Disney movie Frozen. You Know the lyrics to that song? No rights, no wrongs, no rules. For me, I'm free. Oh, let it go, girl, let it go. This is somebody, thank you very much, I'm here all day. This is somebody who says, this is who I am. This is where I'm headed in life. This is what makes me me. The other way, we form our identity. Now, I think it's worth acknowledging that both of these approaches have merit. You could argue, for example, that forming my identity through my external world, well, the heroic narrative is what I might call self-sacrifice less of me for the sake of my external world. If I choose to form my identity internally, you could argue that the heroic narrative is self-assertion. This is who I am, this is where I'm headed in life, and no one's going to get in my way. But I want to go on to show that I think both of these approaches to forming our identity are fundamentally flawed. They do not lead to the life that we long for deep down, and I want to go on and explain why. Firstly, if I form my identity through my external world, the first challenge is that the network of relationships of which I am a part are constantly shifting and changing. And it can be really hard to work out where do I fit best. A really trivial example of this, though actually there are gazillions I could give you, but a really trivial example is right now I live in London. I could choose to use that to form my sense of identity. I'm a Londoner. I'm a city boy. I'm a man about town. Well, sometimes in a church like Christchurch... Don't laugh at that. I'm cool. Sometimes in a church like Christchurch, I meet people from the north. Ooh. Hands up if you would identify as being from the north, northerners. Yep. Just watch your personal belongings if you're sitting nearby. Only joking or partner banter. Now, there is... There is a kind of north-south rivalry in the UK. But hey, later on this year, it's Football's World Cup. Well at that point it's, come on, England, I don't care where you're from. We're all part of the same tribe. Of course, you know, good luck to Wales and Scotland too. Oh no, you didn't make it. Ha. Only the flag of St. George in my particular world. But in a couple of years' time, when the Olympics rolls into town, suddenly cheering for the United Kingdom's Andy Murray is fair game. He's now one of us. And of course, when golf's Ryder Cup takes place, I'm now part of the cultured team ethic of the European elite against those nasty Americans and so on and so forth. It's a really trivial example of how our tribe is constantly changing, and we're always trying to work out with whom do I fit best. Another challenge with forming my identity through my external world is what happens when my internal desires clash with the people of whom I am a part. really tame example of this is when my granddad was in his late teens, early 20s. He really wanted to be a journalist. But his father was in the grocery trade, and he said, No, you're not doing that. Because I work in this industry, and my dad did, and his dad did, and his dad did. This is what you are going to have to do with your life. And he had to forsake his own desires and longings for the sake of the tribe of which he was a part. And of course, we all know more serious examples of this, where people have had to know their place to fulfill a certain role in society. More than that, the culture of which we are a part pushes identity formation upon us in lots of invisible ways, many of which you could argue are actually oppressive in nature. A really tame example would be, right now, all of us, you could argue, feel a certain pressure to look a certain way and to dress a certain way. You are all dressed in a way that 100 years ago would have seemed absolutely preposterous. Why do we dress this way? It's because of partly where we choose to form our identity. You can say that when you form your identity through your external world, there's a pressure to achieve a certain status in life. Dare I say it, in certain cultures, there's even a pressure to hold certain religious beliefs or political opinions. And what can happen as a result of this is I end up living my life in this top left quadrant, a world that I might describe as illusion, where maybe I even have high levels of acceptance, but deep down I feel nobody really knows who I really am. Social media would fit very well indeed here. I heard the other day that on YouTube alone, there are over 13,000 tutorials about how to take the perfect selfie. We can become very adept at creating these online personas that look absolutely amazing. But deep down we feel, is that the real me? Does anybody know who I really am and all the pains and vulnerabilities I carry around with me every single day? Approval addiction can go up here. You want to know the symptoms of approval addiction? There's this desperate need to know, what do other people really think of me? It can be a very wearying place to live. But before we start thinking that, therefore, the antidote to all of this is I therefore need to start living for myself rather than living for my external world, I think this approach to forming our identity is equally flawed. Let me give you a couple of examples why. Firstly, how do I know who I really am inside? Who is the real me? Let me give you an extreme example to make the point. Imagine if I looked into myself right now and saw high levels of anger and aggression. Well, in my current context, I think that's a little inappropriate. That's not who I really am. I'm going to suppress that because that's not the real me. But imagine I could get into a time machine and go back to medieval England. If I looked into myself and saw high levels of anger and aggression, I might think that's exactly who I am. I'm a warrior. I'm a fighter. Same me, different contexts, and I'm making very different decisions as to who I think I really am. I am encouraging some emotions and suppressing others. Perhaps some of you can relate to the fact that at different times in your life, you have wanted to be and to do different things. How do I know who I really am? And this sense of finding out who we really are, it bleeds into every part of our life. Before I worked for Christchurch, I was a journalist with the BBC. And when I got asked to give that up and work for the church, it felt like it tugged on my sense of identity a little bit too much. I began to picture myself in 50 years' time, journalist Andy over here, church worker Andy over there, and I felt like I was looking at two very different versions of me. Who's the real me? And we'd love to think that all our inner desires order themselves in a very neat, natural way. In reality, the very opposite is true. The brilliant author Francis Spufford puts it like this. We are a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonise. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged, so we truly want to possess and truly want not to at the same time. Now, just put all that complexity to one side for a moment. Let's imagine I can look into myself, and I know exactly who I am. I know exactly where I'm headed in life. I'm going to be like Elsa in Frozen. No rights, no wrongs, no rules for me. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Sounds amazing. Until we remember that poor Elsa lived all alone in a frozen ice castle, save for a big marshmallow monster of a company. You see, the danger is when I live for myself, what happens is I drop into this bottom right-hand quadrant, a world that I might describe as being one of rejection, where people might know who I am and what I really stand for in life, but the more I do that, the less acceptance I receive from my wider community. You see, in reality, who really wants to live around the person who is only living for themselves? I know I don't. And the more I live for me, the more rejection I can receive from my wider community. This is a deeply painful place to live. And this top left quadrant is a deeply wearying place to live. And so what many of us do is we retreat to this bottom quadrant here, a world that I might describe as being one of isolation, where I feel that nobody really knows who I am, and I'm not really accepted anyway. It's a deeply lonely place to live. One of the reasons I can end up here is because I look into myself and see all my weaknesses and failings and think, I don't even want to know me. I don't even like me. And if other people knew what was going on inside, they wouldn't like me either. This is utterly toxic for the human condition. I read some statistics on this recently that suggested if you live in a place full of high air pollution, it increases your odds of dying early by 5%, with obesity by 20%, with excessive drinking by 30%, but with loneliness. Loneliness increases our odds of dying young by 45%. There is an epidemic of this in the UK right now. It's crazy to think that the government has just appointed a minister to deal with loneliness. So if forming my identity through my external world does not work, and through forming my identity through my internal world does not work, what on earth is the solution? Well, there was a quite brilliant philosopher and author called Soren Kierkegaard who talked about this. How do you form a more stable and secure sense of self? And he outlined the weaknesses of both of these approaches. He says, if you live for your external world, it'll always end in pain because people are imperfect and they will always let you down. And if you live for your internal world, you're going to end up putting an enormous pressure on your shoulders to perform, to succeed, to achieve. What does it do for your identity when you fail? What do you think of yourself then? And more likely, what happens when you look into yourself and you don't like what you see? How does that shape your sense of identity and the way that you see yourself? So Kierkegaard suggested this. If forming my identity through my external world doesn't work, And forming my identity by looking inwardly is equally flawed. Maybe we have to look up to God, to somebody who does not change, to somebody who knows the very worst of who I am and who accepts me anyway. The answer, according to Kierkegaard, is what he called unconditional love. He also described this as living for an audience of one. You see, if you want, the most unique element about the Christian faith compared to any other worldview, religious, humanistic, or otherwise. The uniqueness of the Christian faith is this. In any other worldview, I get my value, I get my identity through what I do with my life, how much I achieve, where I fit in society, even with the gods. If I want the gods to accept me, I've got to read the holy book. I've got to pray every day. I've got to do lots of good works. Christian faith says this. Now you can never be good enough. And so God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to give his life for us. And if I come to God through him, then God sees the very worst of who I am. And he just loves me anyway. Brings the most wonderful sense of security. Now we will come back to this in a moment. Just hold all of that in your mind's eye. Let's now return to this curious conversation between Jesus and this woman who shouts out, Wow, your mum, Jesus, she must be amazing. Why would Jesus respond in this way? Well, we have to remember the culture of the time. You see, women were very much seen as second-class citizens. If you were a woman, your highest calling in all of life was simply to have children. That was your goal. That was your role. In ancient Athens, at around about this point in history, If you were a woman, you would legally be classified as a child for as long as you lived, no matter how high your IQ, no matter how gifted you were, you would always be the property of a man. In Sparta, the only way as a woman you would get your name on a tombstone is if you died during childbirth. It was a way of telling everybody else in the culture, this is where you get your value. This is your highest call. Simply have more kids. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. So think of that culture. So when a woman calls out, wow, your mum, Jesus, she must be amazing. It kind of makes sense because his mum hasn't just had a kid, but oh, what a kid. Listen to the amazing stuff that he's saying. What is Jesus doing with his reply? He's using it as a teaching point. He's saying this. As a woman, as a mother, you are more than simply a reproducing machine. Your value comes from more than being someone who reproduces life. Your value, your worth, comes from being utterly loved unconditionally by a God in whose image you have been made. Put in 2018 terms, what would Jesus say to your mum? I think he'd say this you are not defined by the job you think you are doing as a parent. I think Jesus would say this. You are not defined by how your kids turn out in the future. Oh, glory, isn't that amazing news? (laughs) I have met some of your kids. This is really good news. Your children could end up being an astronaut or end up curing some disease in the future or they could end up in prison or anything that comes in between. That is not where your value comes from. I think Jesus would say this, your value doesn't even come from whether or not you have kids. Your value doesn't come from whether or not even you are married. It doesn't come from your relationship status, how long you have been single, the size of your salary, the length of your job title at work your grades at school or university, your prospects for the future, the size of your property portfolio, everything in 2018 that would cause us to call out from the crowd, wow, you are so blessed because of all of this stuff. Jesus would say, no, 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 no. Blessed rather are those who know that their value does not come from things that can change like shifting sands, but from those who know they are loved by a father in heaven, who sent his son to give his life for them, that they might know this kind of security and freedom. When we understand this, it just changes everything as to how we live life. Imagine this week, for example, you've got a really difficult assignment at work. It means your value doesn't change depending on what your boss thinks of it. Your value doesn't change depending on how many compliments you get from your colleagues. Your value doesn't change depending on whether or not you get that promotion. No, your worth remains the same regardless. It brings such comfort and such security. And there is another final twist to this. Because Jesus talked about hearing and then obeying, living this stuff out. You see, as I understand that I am unconditionally loved, I can then communicate this love to a world that so desperately needs it. I can show unconditional love to other people, not to get acceptance from other people, but simply because I am accepted. What might that look like? Let me just give you one example. 2,000 years ago, baby girls were not particularly well thought of. They were largely seen as disposable commodities. In fact, in the Roman Empire, of which little Israel was a part, there was a law in place called the Law of Romulus which obliged you to care for every son that you had, but only the firstborn daughter. Any other daughter was seen as disposable, and often, shockingly, they were on things like rubbish dumps. In the ancient city of Delphi, of the 600 families that history records lived there, only six raised more than one girl. The rest, we can safely assume, were just thrown away. Question... As a matter of historical record, whatever we think about God, the Bible, and Jesus, and all that jazz, as a matter of history, what changed this? The answer is this. It was a group of followers of a rabbi called Jesus who understood this, that someone's value doesn't come from things like your gender or your prospects for the future, how many battles you can win. No, your value comes from being unconditionally loved by a God in whose image you have been made. And therefore, little girls have exactly the same value as little boys, and we will raise them as equals. Changed all of history. And so, and so, and so, in the light of all of this, if I had one prayer for us as a community in South London, if I had one prayer for these beautiful little lives that are on stage a short while earlier, I think it would be this. That increasingly we understand the security and comfort that comes from, as Kierkegaard said, living for an audience of one. That we are increasingly set free from the pressure of having to perform for our external world, fulfil lots of roles in lots of different settings. Maybe you can relate to being a slightly different person in church on Sunday than you might be in the workplace on Monday. May we be set free from that that we are released from the loneliness and isolation that comes from living for ourselves. And that as we increasingly understand that, my prayer goes even further, that we increasingly show that love to a world and to a nation right now that desperately needs it. Our legacy as a community would be that the rejected and the lonely and those living in a world of illusion know they are utterly and completely loved. And more than that, That as a community, we see the inherent value and worth in every single person that we come across, even and especially those that we would often ignore. That we see the value and worth tomorrow in the cleaning lady at work, in the person that serves us burger and chips in the fast food outlet, in the man begging for money in the street, in the refugee. That we see the value and worth in the person that works for that political party that we really hate. That we see the value and worth in the banker and the millionaire who use their money in ways that we think is not right. Their value doesn't come from what they do. That we see the value and worth in the person that voted the opposite way from us in the European referendum. That we see the value and worth in the Trump supporter and the Democrat. And the person who holds very different beliefs and worldviews from us. And that as a result, the world in which we live is different. Because we don't measure people by what they do on the outside. But the fact they are utterly loved by the God who created them. Luke chapter 11. Oh wow, Jesus, your mum. She must be amazing. Oh she is, says Jesus. Oh she is. But not for the reasons that you think. Maybe the band wanna come up. Why don't we stand to our feet for a moment? Uh, before we sing, I'd just like to pray a very simple prayer for us. But before I do that, I just want to leave 30 seconds of quiet stillness for you to reflect on from where you have been getting your sense of identity. And perhaps where that might need to change. Opportunity for quiet reflection can operate. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org.